your inner armor. Welcome to the Inner Armor Podcast with Dr. Timothy Royer, where we explore ways to train our brains and bodies to become dynamically resilient so that we can all, from professional athletes to ordinary people, perform at our potential. Well, Doc, we talk a lot about the mind-body connection. And if you think of our mind as the conscious self, our ability to think and feel and choose, where that is centered is in the brain. Yeah. I mean, you've got the basic neuroanatomy of it and how it works, which the further we study the brain, the more we find out what we don't know. And anybody that comes straight at you and says they know this whole thing and has it figured out, I'd run as far as you can because it just gets more and more complex. Even the whole idea of how memory happens, we used to think it was kind of storage centers, but it's not even that the more we study it. So you've got the conscious and you've got the unconscious. While we don't have an exact number on it, based on all the things that are going on unconsciously, you've really your consciousness is only about five to 10% at most. And there's so many other variables happening unconsciously that ultimately impact your conscious, impact your thoughts, impact your what your body's doing. And that's where we're going to put a lot of focus as we study this uh, three and a half pound organ. My whole life, I've heard people say you only use 10% of your brain or whatever. Uh, But what I hear you saying, it's not so much that we're only using 10% of our brain. It's that we're only conscious of 10%. There's a lot going on sort of under the hood, right? Uh, It's very interesting how we actually train the brain, how we are able to leverage the brain's greatest ability, which is learning, and actually change the electrical current in the brain. And when we go through that process to To teach that, which involves a lot of computer brain interface, (laughs) one of the most difficult things that I run up to is people saying when when we have the computer giving them feedback, well, what do I do? What do I do? And it's very difficult to explain to them what you're thinking is very little compared to the rest of how your nervous system is functioning. And that is the part that we need to work with first. And I found over the years the The people who move the fastest through strengthening their brain and optimizing are the ones who aren't bogged down by what is it that I have to do. Like a five-year-old autistic child will advance far faster than the CEO of a billion-dollar corporation that's trying to do steps one, steps two, step three. You got to work on the unconscious side first. If you think of a car that's got all these complex systems and you only have sort of the user interface, you've got the steering wheel and a couple of buttons and the pedals or whatever, but there's so much going on beneath it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just think of this concept when I say the the number 98.6, right? It's not just a radio station. It's actually your body temperature. And just stop for a second and think about this. This is crazy. It's just, it blows my mind. My brain is keeping me at 98.6 24-7 from the time I'm born till the time I die. My brain is regulating. And it's not just saying, hey, Tim, someplace in the 90s would be a good idea right. or just stay within six, seven degrees. I, mean, I just flew up here from Jacksonville and we're in Michigan and I looked at the thermostat. It's 17 degrees out right. and it was 71 yesterday in Jacksonville. But my brain figured that out. And it's keeping me at 98.6, no matter where I am. 
That is just mind-boggling. Mind that's, mind that's just one thing. But that, that brings up your whole career and everything that you've done around the world with everything from professional athletes down to ordinary people has all been trying to help better synchronize and coordinate and harness what's going on in that 90% we can't see. And I would say, just to share a little bit of my journey, yeah. that, that, that did, I just didn't wake up and say, oh, I'm going to do the brain right out yeah. of the chute. I went to graduate school, got some different master's degrees, and then got a doctoral degree. And I came out as a neuropsychologist working in a, in a children's hospital. Had a great opportunity to become the division chief there of this pretty large children's hospital. And I thought I was going to do this the rest of my life. I'd been taught neuropsych. I've been taught how to make diagnoses, how to put people into the boxes. You have your DSM. And, and what you're taught is like, as quick as you can with your testing and your interview, put them in a box, right? And let's put six and a half million in the ADHD box and let's put 20 million in the anxiety box, whatever that is, we're like putting them in the boxes. And I did that for a good seven, eight years, right? And as I was doing that, I was starting to run into some more technology where we were actually not just looking at behaviors, but actually looking at the brain. I want to say that again, okay? Not just looking at behaviors, but looking at the brain, because that's where most of our care of different behaviors and emotions really slips up is we just fill out a checklist and then we move on and nobody's looked at the brain. And I started looking at the brain and in about a 10-year span, studied over 50,000 brains. And guess what I found? Everyone is different. Everybody listening to this podcast right now, your brain is unique. It's different. There will never be anybody from the beginning of time until the end of time that will have the exact same brain. And I had been down this road of take them all and put them in this box and then have them get on this medicine to address that issue. And then I'd have the parents come back and they'd say, that didn't really work for him. I put him on this medicine and he has tics or he can't sleep at night or um, he's anxious or now he's more depressed. Well, then it'd be put him on more medicine. And the more I studied this, and the more we were working at the children's hospital, some of these kids would end up on the ICU because they were getting overdosed on these meds. And that was kind of the behind the curtain look at this. And I started to realize the thing we're neglecting the most in all this is the brain. And so that really pushed me. I would say until maybe eight or nine years into my career, like, man, I got to step back and I got to start measuring the brain and study the brain first. And as I did, one, I realized how much I didn't know. And two, I started to see how we could help people change their lives in ways that went way beyond a pill bottle, that literally the brain is more powerful than that stuff. And that's where our discussion has to start, is with the brain. Our understanding of the brain has advanced so much in recent decades, in the last 50, 60, 70 years. There are parts of the body that you can study. You can, you can look at the muscles, you can look at the skeleton, you can dissect somebody and look at their internal organs. But you come to the brain and what you see are these folds. You can go back to Gray's anatomy from the 1800s yeah. and you can see these folds. But what they couldn't see was what was going inside of it because it's all electrical activity. And yeah. they didn't have the capacity to measure that. So now what we have is an understanding of what's going on in this, as you say, three and a half pound mysterious organ. Yeah. And I think for me, I mean, there's all, I can't wait for what's going to come around the corner as far as imaging and studying the brain. What I lean into a lot is EEG, 
looking at electrical activity. And I really see the brain as a, an electrical device. Electrical, it's the most complex, mysterious, wonderful thing that's ever been created. But it needs electricity. It runs off of electricity. And inside there, you have all these neurons. You have 100 billion neurons that have these branch-like structures that create these synapses where they don't really touch each other, but they send chemical signals. And the best calculation is that there's over a quadrillion neuronal connections. That's like more than there are stars in the universe in a three and a half pound organ. And I think with that complexity, we're going to talk about computers and we're going to talk about engines and we're going to talk. And that's just the simplicity to which our mind can even grasp this. But it's not as simple as a computer. You can't build this thing. And computers have more sequential or serial processing. Yes, there are some parallel kind of things that happen. But the brain is super unique in that way, is there's parallel processes that are happening constantly in all different of these neurons. And it's not as simple as one neurotransmitter. It's not serotonin. It's not dopamine. Those are important. They're all important. But there's different things that have to interact in different receptor sites in the brain that allow dopamine and these things to and do different stuff. sequences right yeah so exactly and, and quantities but as you say your brain is releasing all of these different things at different times and in different locations and in different quantities and in different sequences in response to different stimuli or stresses so it's really it can't be reduced to any one thing you really need to step back and really look at what is the brain doing? And it's working off of this electrical current. And you need to be looking at that electrical current for cues. And I think before even talking about the electrical current, we have to figure out where in the heck does this electricity come from? The efficiency of how it's generating the energy. And yes, you have the thermoregulation, the heat. It's just, we couldn't build anything that could do this working at the consumption rate that it's doing. So you have this three and a half pound organ using 20% of your energy. So next time you sit down to eat, okay, I'd like you just to pause for a second and realize that 20% of what's on that plate is going to this organ, this three and a half pound organ. And while it can make that energy off of all types of food, there is an important component to what types of food we're making electricity from, just like what types of fuels are used to make electricity in the real world, right? There's some, some things that are clean, there's some things that are dirty, and we'll get into that as far as power. But when we look at that plate, thinking how clean and efficient is this energy going to be that I'm going to create from it? And so when we think about, well, where does it come from? What do, what do we need for it to function? We're inundated with new supplements, new neurotransmitters, ways to affect those. And those are all super important, very important. And our diet is very, very important. But when we look at it, somewhere around 80 to 90% of the energy that we're going to make that's going to fuel the body and that the brain, the energy hog is going to take a lot of comes from breathing, breathing, right? And just do a search of all the different things out there that you're just getting flooded with and how many are just saying, hey, what about stopping for three times a day and breathing for three minutes, nice and slow, diaphragmatically and and settling the autonomic nervous system down? 
but it's kind of a lost, lost art. 80 to 90% of my energy, but where am I putting my focus as far as what I'm taking in? Food is important. Water is important. I like people to think about for a second, what, how long can you go without something? We can go without food for a while, days, weeks, maybe. We can go without water for a, a little bit, okay? We need the hydration. There's a lot of the brain that's made of hydration. And think about electrical current. How does electrical current work? It works good with the hydration. You don't want to step in a puddle when there's electrical wire in it. Why? Because that transmits electricity. But on the positive side, we need the hydration to transmit electricity. So you can't go with water very long. Something that we kind of miss a lot is how important sleep is. And we're going to spend multiple podcasts on sleep. but Think about this, of the different things that will kill you on the planet. If I kept you from sleeping for 13 to 14 days, you would die. 13 to 14 days. Okay, we just went through a pandemic. 13 to 14 days is a fast time for something to kill you. In seven days without sleep, you would be psychotic. You wouldn't even know who you are, right? So there's so much of our energy that relies on our sleep patterns. I mean, let's think about what, what we're doing at night. We don't want blue at night, but we do want blue in the morning. Expose yourself to blue light in the, at the night, in the evening, and that would be like the worst thing you could do to your circadian rhythm because you're going to, in some cases, maybe decrease your melatonin production up to 30%, depending on how much. Get your nervous system amped up by binging Netflix episodes of Peaky Blinders or something like that, <laughs> right? right? Right before you're going to bed. And also take this environment that you're supposed to be going into a parasympathetic recovery state and make it an anxious state. So make your bedroom this anxious place, right? We know that attention span, attention span has dramatically decreased in the last 15 years. That's been measured that the brain can't attend like it was 15, 20 years ago. Who knows what it was 100 years ago? And while I'm definitely thankful for the light bulb and electricity, there is something that's happened within the onset of electricity in all of our homes that there's an upside, but we also have to realize that there could also be a downside. And how do we, how are we good stewards of this in a way that it doesn't hurt us? But I mean, there are estimates that over a hundred years ago, the average person was sleeping around uh, just over nine hours a night, right? We really need to be around eight hours, and I know people are going to come up with different things, and we'll talk about why that's important later, but the average person in the United States is sleeping less than seven hours a night. So we definitely have a massive shift, and we also have a massive increase in a lot of different chronic illnesses. I mean, just go through the list, and it all starts in the brain. As you have said, it's upstream. We look downstream at all these things, but who's looking upstream? Before you put something in your brain, who's looking upstream to see what is going on in the electrical current in your brain? Talk about the variability between individuals. There's so many different ways that all these things are measured. How do you sort all that out? I kind of see them as sort of like a con concentric circles, like a bullseye, right? And it matters kind of where you're coming in to assess. Okay, so somebody comes in and they haven't been sleeping well for a few days and they go into their doctor's office. Their behavior is that they're not sleeping well, right? The doctor could just take that and need to move on to the next appointment and give them their Ambien and out the door. Then 15 minutes later, somebody else walks in and they're not sleeping well. So they're an outside circle behavior is not sleeping well. 
And so we're going to do a chemical change to the brain without really figuring that out. But I can guarantee you that those two people have different etiology of why they're not sleeping well. So if we start to work our way inward, okay, and start to look at what's going on uh, cognitively for them, okay, in areas of external stress as well as internal stress or some type of physiological inflammation that's causing stress. And if we're not looking at that, that's going to be different for everybody. So each layer that we go through, you're going to get exponential differences so that it creates kind of this, this matrix of difference between people. And then we go even further into the physiological, what's going on physiological. And finally, we get to the neurological, which very few people are looking at. They're not looking at that electrical current and seeing what's going on. But the distance between the neurological and that behavior is vast. And we have to stop and look at it. A, a good example of just kind of, I experienced this early on in my career where you can make assumptions about the brain was in Michigan in the early 90s. Uh, I worked with a team of people that developed one of the first uh, fetal alcohol syndrome clinics at, the children, at our children's hospital in Michigan. There was uh, one on the east side over in Lansing area, U of M, but we didn't have anything on the west side of the state. So these kids were coming in from the Upper Peninsula, all over the state, early on to see if they had fetal alcohol syndrome. There was some suspicion that they might. Their, their family practice docs had sent them in or their pediatricians. And before they'd get there, we would get scans or images of their brain because one of the things in fetal alcohol syndrome is how that alcohol can affect the brain. And you would see some of these in- images that were just so awful, so sad to see of these brains, right? And we would say, oh my goodness, what's this child going to look like when they come into the clinic? I mean, they're going to be in a wheelchair, maybe a feeding tube, who knows what's going on with this child because the brain just looked so bad, right? And then all of a sudden, the door would open up and Sally would be carrying her violin okay and she's wanting to learn her third language and we'd all be looking at each other like what like we we didn't know from that image how different and how unique the brain could be so even in our something might look a certain way but until you really study it you don't really know like the brain is amazing like this brain should not be able to do what it's doing and i realize i'm putting like parameters around the brain and saying, well, this is all it can do. This is the ceiling that you have. And then I started to realize, wait a minute, we don't know what the ceiling is. And I can tell everybody that's listening right now, whatever you think your ceiling is, is higher than that. Because the brain has huge, huge capacity. And it was those Sally's and those Johnny's and those different people, those brains I saw that were doing amazing things when we thought there's no way that the brain could be able to do that. That really set me up to, to work with the average person, you know, the person out there with their kid who has an anxiety disorder or the Kirk Cousins of the world. Talk about the anatomy of the nervous system. Oh, it's very complex. The nervous system is you have kind of a hardware component to it. So you're thinking of your central nervous system, which is your brain and your spinal cord. You can like take pictures of that. You can look at that and see what that's doing. We can see a tumor or we can see a stroke. So that's, that's like the hard, hard drive. That's the computer. And then you have like these software systems. Okay. So we got our Microsoft Word or our PowerPoint that's now going to run on this 
hardware. So like the apps on your phone, yeah. underneath them, something is turning those apps on and off, con- conserving and managing power and battery life, right? Yeah, and that would be what we refer to as the peripheral nervous system. So this is like the software components. And there's two different components to the. There's the somatic, which is more your voluntary, your choices that you're going to make. Like if I'm outside and all of a sudden water from, falls from the sky, I'm going to pull out an umbrella, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm going to, or put on a raincoat. But then you have the autonomic nervous system. This is, this is beyond kind of the conscious level, but yet we can do things consciously. We do things every moment that affect the unconscious level, which is the autonomic nervous system. The autonomic nervous system is constantly taking in information from the environment, and it takes that through our five senses. So if we didn't have our five senses, our autonomic nervous system wouldn't have any data to work with, but it has to look outside of itself, see what's going on in the environment, the autonomic nervous system does, through our five senses, and then from that data, it then decides how we're going to use the energy. Remember last podcast, we talked about how do we make energy? That's the making This is the managing. Now we're going to manage the electrical current that we're making. And this is the autonomic nervous system. Does that primarily through the five senses. And it decides whether it's going to use a lot of electrical current, which is a a fight-flight response, or the technical word for that is sympathetic, sympathetic, or it can choose to use very little electrical current. And that is rest, digest, renew. That's where we rest, we digest our food, we do recovery. The technical word for that is parasympathetic. So think of like a parachute kind of falling slowly down. That's our parasympathetic. So we have the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. And it's a delicate balance here with the energy because the energy isn't just, just use as much as you want. The nervous system has to be very, very efficient in conserving this energy. And so it decides the autonomic nervous system to go fast, slow, or someplace in between based on the senses. Uh, but there's one other thing that steps in the way sometimes. What's that? <laughs> so, so in the animal kingdom, they're primarily using their five senses. Right. And that's pretty much it. There's a great book written by a neurobiologist from Stanford called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. Okay, great title. And it's also a great book. But in there, he talks about the zebra has to deal with lions all the time. It does have to deal with life and death situations, and it's running from these lions. And when it does that, the autonomic nervous system, through its senses, through the zebra senses, it takes that information, says, that's a lion, I need to run. And the autonomic nervous system in milliseconds kicks into a sympathetic response which then goes downstream to all these systems. Every single one of these systems has a reaction to what the autonomic nervous system tells it to do. So you can probably think of those already. What's the cardiovascular system going to do? The heart's going to beat faster. What's the respiratory system going to do? It's going to take in more oxygen. And on and on it goes. Your endocrine system is going to flood you with adrenaline. Exactly. Your reproductive system can be impacted. An animal in crisis isn't going to reproduce in a dangerous environment. And I used to 
do some work in the 90s with some fertility clinics. And it was very interesting, not in all cases, but in some cases we would see individuals with highly sympathetic nervous systems upstream. Remember, we're upstream, downstream, and we're focusing on the reproductive system, realizing, oh, wait a minute, we need to go back upstream, stabilize the autonomic nervous system, and then that impacts the ability for reproduction. So animals do it that way, senses. When the chase is over, if the zebra survived, if the chase is over, you know what that zebra is going to do? He's going to go back down to the river and he's going to eat, he's going to drink, he's going to be with his baby zebras. But you know what he's not going to do? He's not going to worry about the next chase. He's not worrying whether his baby zebras are going to go to Harvard or not. He's not worrying about his 401k, right? He's just back in parasympathetic. And the reason many animals don't have a lot of these chronic illnesses that we have as humans is they're not stuck in sympathetic. They're not stuck in the what ifs. What if this happens? They're not stuck in the what abouts. What about this thing that happened that I can't resolve in my psyche? My unresolved past is my present. They're not stuck there, right? They're just living off their senses. But us as humans, we have this kind of blessing and a curse, and that is this big frontal lobe, okay? And this frontal lobe allows us to be able to think into the future and think into the past. We talk a lot, you know, you'll see people talking about being present. Well, the reason we're talking about being present is very easy to not be present, right? When I work with my pro athletes or my CEOs or entertainers, and I talk about that moment where I want them to be present, I want them to be 100% there. And if you watch some of the quarterbacks I work with, you'll see that when they walk onto the field, they're touching the ground, they're gra- if they can, grabbing some grass and kind of feeling it, taking in their senses and trying to be present. But our frontal lobe can take us out of presence and it can put us into scenarios that aren't really happening. So if I ask you right now out there, are you really in a life and death situation? Is it a lion chasing you? Or is it something that you're constructing that's become a lion. You know, the guy in the foxhole with bullets going over his head, he doesn't need to be taking a nap, right? He doesn't need his nervous system to be telling his body to do all these slow recovery things. And one of those things is sleep. A a parasympathetic primary thing that's parasympathetic is sleeping. And so in order to save his life, he will stay in a sympathetic state and avoid some of those things that are necessary for recovery in that moment. But it becomes learned. And then that's done. And he's back here. And he's trying to regulate, but he's having these learned responses. Because the brain's greatest capacity is ability to learn, which is a good thing, but it can be a bad thing because we can learn to get in that state. And when that happens... There's a very unique chemical uh, reaction that happens in the brain. So when the brain goes into a sympathetic state, so my senses tell me, or I create that in my mind, okay, and I go into the sympathetic state, there's something called the hypothalamus, which releases a chemical. This is within like milliseconds, right? I see the lion, 
the hypoth- the brain lights up with electrical current. The autonomic nervous system engages the and the hypothalamus releases a chemical to something called the pituitary gland. And then the pituitary gland releases another chemical all the way down into near our digestive system to our adrenal glands. This is all happening in milliseconds, right? And then I release adrenaline or cortisol, people refer to as that. And what that does is it tells my body, we're going to create a lot of energy right now. So my cells start to absorb three to four times the amount of sugar than they normally would to have energy to run, to fight. And that's good if I'm running from a lion. That's really good because I'll burn that energy off and it'll get me out of that situation. But what happens if I'm sitting at my cubicle or I'm at the steering wheel of my car and I'm creating the exact same response in my brain, the HPA axis, hypothalamus, pituitary, adrenal gland, is, is sending out this adrenaline that's asking for all this sugar, okay? And my body's trying to respond to it. Well, I can develop all kinds of bad habits with these systems that contribute to what's called metabolic syndrome, where I'm now stuck in the state of an overactivated HPA axis. And learning to shut that down is not just a pill to do that. You know, you can give somebody enough sedative to slow them down, but now they can't drive a car and react to a stressful situation because you've shut down a system that we need to protect us. So many of the solutions for overactive HPA axis like PTSD, different anxiety disorders, those kind of things, are more like band-aids because they're not fixing that learned response in the brain that has to shut down the HPA axis response or alter it. If you've lived in that state for so long, that now has become grooved in you. And the only way you know how to respond to stimuli is by panicking. Right. And you must have seen this in your career a hundred thousand times. The only way I know how to react is to panic. Exactly. And that becomes your normal. Like you, you, that's just where your body stays. I, I like to say uh, this uh, phrase is one of the greatest things about being a human is that we can habituate to things. We can, we can adapt. One of the worst things about being a human is that we adapt to things and habituate to them. Right. And we start to think that that's normal. Right. Every time I'm in this conversation with this person, boss, spouse, whoever, child, I activate the same sympathetic response. And they're not a lion. They're not going to kill you. But you've learned this pattern that we have to change. And we can read those patterns. See, that's the thing is it's not just something you can't do anything about. We can see that. Like I can see that. And we'll get into this in later episodes. We can see that in an EEG. We can see the electrical current in there and when the brain is going too fast, when it's developed faulty patterns. And the other thing that you have to look at is in the development of these faulty patterns, what am I missing out on in the process? Because these things are very sympathetic. There's other faulty patterns that can be downshifting or parasympathetic, which has to do with depression, those kind of things. But when I'm stuck up in a sympathetic state, then I can't get into these parasympathetic states that my body needs to recover. And the number one thing would be sleep. So 
when you're not sleeping at night and you're wide awake staring at the ceiling, running these scenarios of your 401k and you know, payroll for your small business, do you think you're in parasympathetic getting ready to sleep? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. You're stuck in sympathetic. You will not sleep or it'll be very restless. And then that will build on itself. And so you not only have to think about what is this doing on one end, but what's it also doing on the other? Because I need this balance of the sympathetic, parasympathetic. And as we started the episode, every system is impacted by where you are on the autonomic nervous system scale. Take somebody who grew up in a home with a lot of chaos, a lot of stress, a lot of screaming, maybe physical abuse. And so as a child, they learn this response. Authority figures, people in their life that come at them, they're very wary because they never know when they're going to get yelled at or hit, or right? Right. So that becomes a learned response. It's Protective. How I, what you're really going to have to do is retrain your ANS to respond to situations and stimuli differently. You want, you want to talk about that? Yeah. I've been at lectures before where after the lecture, the parent brings up their ADHD kid and they say, what do you think, doc? Do you think they have ADHD? And when I first started my career, I'd kind of rub my chin a little bit and say, yes, of course they do. Now that it's been almost 30 years, they come up and the kid can be bouncing all over the place. I'm like, I have no idea. If he has AD, I know what his behaviors look like, but I don't know what his brain looks like. Until I look at his brain upstream, why would I put anything in the most wondrous thing in the universe to alter it without knowing what's causing that? And so we need to be able to, to be looking upstream first and then work systematically downstream. And that's where I think we're really missing it in medicine because we're really good at chemical alterations in our, our form of medicine that we do. And they're really good. Like if you've got ulcers, you know, there's, there's something that you can use for that, right? If you've got high blood pressure, there's something you can use for that. If you've got a problem with allergies, there's something that you can use for that. But the problem is, is that the beach ball that I'm pushing down in the pool? And I'm not really addressing an upstream thing that's making it worse. I've literally seen people where we worked upstream on their brain and they don't have allergies anymore. And people are like, what? Yeah, because there's a sympathetic component to having allergies is where everything you become allergic to, right? So it's like I've been trained to react to certain things in certain ways. And that triggers through this sequence of events downstream, all these other things going on in my body. So how do we go up and begin to alter that response code? That's really what inner armor is about, right? Retraining at that level upstream, how we respond to stimuli. Yeah. And we look at it in inner armor. We've been doing things for years where very concierge type treatments, we've worked in centers. We used to have owned a company that 13 centers throughout Michigan and Florida. We see close to 10,000 appointments a year at these centers. We've looked at all kinds of ways to deliver treatment. And what we've found out is a lot of people's lives are busy. <laughs> so, um, you know, these hour long sessions, these, you know, hour and 30, they're all very good and we can get there. And, you know, the, the quarterbacks of the world, the CEOs, maybe they have the time to do that in the off season, but not everybody does. So we've developed kind of a system where we break this down into 11 minutes or less that you can do. and 
one of the first things we're looking at is those senses that come in. Are they giving me accurate data? And so we call that precision. Is, am I getting precise data, right? And the one dominant sense, I mean, you could work with all of the senses, but the most dominant sense of our five, it's estimated we take in about 11 million pieces of information a second and 10 million of them are visual. So we really, in our precision component, we're working on getting those visual skills very, very strong. And then in the power side, we're looking at the fueling of the system. We talked earlier about making energy, okay? And so that's made from oxygen. And so we're working on the power side. And then the, the, the focus side is really looking at the brain and the autonomic nervous system and that it's in that sweet spot where it's not overreacting to environmental stimuli that aren't life and death. But that all goes back to measurement. It's always assessment, assessing and getting data. If I'm going to deal with a behavior, if I'm going to deal with a physiological problem, I want to see what the, the main computer is telling me. What is the brain? And that's where we want to start and measuring the autonomic nervous system, how it's responding. So for that stressful board meeting or for that argument or that difficult situation, I'm going to get up into sympathetic and activate all these things. And I need to equalize that with an equal amount of parasympathetic. And that continues. And what one of the things that happens, either it's prescribed drugs or other drugs that we use as a way to try to alter the autonomic nervous system without downshifting it internally, without teaching it to do something different. And so medicines aren't that complicated, okay? They come out with new names, new brands, new commercials, but they're pretty much, if you could put them into two categories, they're gonna, either going to push you from parasympathetic to sympathetic. So I, I'm immobile, I, I'm, I'm having energy issues, and so I'm stuck in parasympathetic, and so I need something to kick me up. Also, we see that in people with attention problems where they take an amphetamine to speed them up. So they go from parasympathetic to sympathetic. Now they're focused because their system's in a fight-fight response. Or I might take something to move me from sympathetic to parasympathetic. So a Xanax or Ambien or marijuana uh, will act as a way to move that system. But those all are like band-aids because I never really teach myself how to downshift into those states. Remember back when I had an office setting where we would have literally hundreds of people come in and uh, I was doing the assessments at that point. And I'd have these 50-some-year-old, 60-year-old individuals walk in and they'd say, I'm having some memory problems. And I would say, when did you start taking your sleep aid? And they're like, I didn't tell you that yet. <laughs> and I was like, uh, I've seen this so many times, okay, is that you had a sympathetic issue in your 30s whether that's from the environment you're in or hormonal changes going into menopause for a woman in her 40s or whatever it was, which is a crisis, definitely a crisis response, a sympathetic response in the body. And your knee-jerk reaction was to put this Band-Aid on it, was to sedate the, the brain. And it worked, but now you're having to pay the piper because it's 10, 15, 20 years later, and you altered something in that sleep cycle that was very important. That's where 
at the end of the day, everything you're doing out there, whatever you're doing to make it in the world or go up the ladder, when you get to wherever you're trying to get to, you want your brain to be along with you. And I've worked with many billionaires, I said billionaires, okay, who have gotten to that point and their brain's not working. And they would give it all up for their brain to start working again. And it's these decisions we make that we think are very simple and sometimes we're steered that way, one way or another, but we don't step back and think, am I addressing the real upstream problem, how I should focus, how I should be less anxious? About two years ago, we started to create feedback loops for people where every 20 seconds, they could see exactly what their heart's doing. And you remember, we go back to the beginning of the podcast, no man steps in the same river twice because he's not. The man's not the same, neither is the river. Well, what I started to realize is those first 40 seconds, regimented breathing was helping calm the heart down, but it would only let it go so far. But if we gave feedback back to the person and showed, even during the state, now you're getting too parasympathetic in your breath, in your heart. Your heart is almost thinking you're supposed to go to sleep now, okay? We don't want it to go to sleep. We want it to stay calm and focused. So we would then adjust the breathing give them feedback, all of a sudden they would stay in that pattern and the heart would actually start going a little bit faster than it need to. And so that feedback loop that we can provide through the computer, through the iPad, they can see it. And now we have them alter their breath ever so slightly. Now they first have to know how to breathe in a good diaphragmatic way uh, at a certain pace. And so we're talking about just mild alterations. But we started to go into levels of coherence that in 15 years, I'd never seen in humans. Never seen people do this. Like we, we kind of have a number that's around 250. You hit that number and it's like, you're pretty much a rock star, right? I was seeing players at some of these pro football teams get up in the thousands. I'm like, um, what is this stuff? Well, what we were doing was we're working with that understanding that we're dynamic. We're changing. Even when I sit down to relax, I'm changing. And I need to have feedback. I need a dashboard to see, well, how do I alter that? Just like the pilot operating the plane, right? I need to faster, slower, you know, I'm not going to descend. I'm going to ascend. Whatever I'm going to do, I need those dials. And so we provide those dials. And in doing so and adjusting some of the stuff, it's been amazing in human potential, what we've been able to see, something I've never seen before. I mean, it's more complex to drive a car than really to learn to manage the autonomic nervous system. I mean, think about what we're doing. Okay, we're cruising down the road at 70 miles an hour with the ball of our foot, you know, maybe having a conversation through speakerphone or with somebody next to us or listening to the radio, whatever we're doing. And then there's these other vehicles zooming past us and these semi trucks, right? And there might even be some rain and whatever. And I'm keeping with the ball of my foot at 70 miles an hour. And somebody looks over at me. And maybe something adjusts and they say, how fast are you going? Oh, I think I'm going about 72. And I look and I'm going 72. Are you kidding me? Well, why? How did you do that? You know, somebody who's never been in a car before, they can't do that. You did that with a speedometer. We created a feedback loop. And that feedback loop became so much a part of your person that you don't even need it most of the time. I mean, you still want to use it and you check it every once in a while, but you don't sit there and stare at it, right? That's giving you a glimpse into the capacity of what the brain and body can do if you give it feedback on itself 
way more powerful than any other ligand chemical change you try to do out there is these voltage-gated changes where you learn to optimize your brain and body. Wow. And that would be dynamically resilient, the ability to maintain 70 miles an hour regardless of what's going on and to be able to cruise through life and not be constantly uh, buffeted by all these different things. The human body and brain just... Even on your worst day out there, I want people to realize you're an amazing creature. You are amazing. You have the most amazing thing in the world, and that's that brain and that autonomic nervous system. This has been the Inner Armor Podcast. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Would you please follow or subscribe and make sure to leave us a review or comment? You can learn more about Inner Armor, Dr. Royer, and how to perform at your potential by going to forgeinnerarmor.com.